Welcome to News in Context, a podcast and radio show exploring issues, topics, and examples involving the importance of putting news and information in context. I'm Gina Valeria, host of News in Context. Each week, I go in-depth via interviews, experiences, panels, and examples from the week's news to illuminate an aspect of contextualizing news and information. In this episode, I sit down with John Zipperer, Vice President of Editorial at the Commonwealth Club of California. John runs a regular event series at the club called the Week to Week Politics Roundtable. He also curates a Week to Week News Quiz. Much of his work involves putting news in context. But before we get to John, because this is the very first episode of News in Context, let's talk about exactly what it does mean to put news in context. Context is generally used to clarify or help us more fully understand something. Definitions include helping something be fully understood or assessed, explaining the conditions in which something occurs, understanding the circumstances of a situation, and considering information together to more fully understand something. In our time together, we'll talk about how to find context for the news and information that bombard us every day. We'll also discuss aspects of our mass media landscape that can either prevent the communication of context or communicate something else entirely. For example, something biased, using a frame that misleads, failing to consider multiple perspectives, or at worst, intentionally presenting information that's false or misleading, what we've been calling fake news. I'll also explore situations where I may not understand someone else's or something else's context. By putting myself in a situation where I can connect across a difference or a divide, my hope is to better understand that context and have you join me on the journey. Welcome to News in Context. so much for talking with me today. Um, so I want to talk first of all about your week-to-week political roundtable. Mm-hmm. And I want to know what prompted you to start something like that. Several things. One of them was, you know, just the dissatisfaction with what we see on like late night cable news, news in quotes, I guess there. It's entertainment kind of along the, you know, Thunderdome idea of people just getting into combat and, whoa, that's you supposedly learned something out of it. Well, you're not. You're entertained or turned off. I was turned off, but I've always loved politics and been interested in it. So I kind of wanted to address that somehow. Um, I had recently gotten into watching uh, Mark Shields and and uh, David Brooks, and, and I was like, I like the fact that here are two people. They're not widely divergent. You know, it's not Infowars versus uh, Huffington Post, but a conservative and a liberal who clearly liked each other could disagree, do it with a sense of humor, uh, and be civil about it. And you learn something out of it. So I wanted to have people on the stage who could do that. And I think, I, I, I mean, I, to be honest, I succeeded the very first program. One of my guests was uh, Deborah J. Saunders, longtime conservative columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle. And uh, she had to leave shortly before the program ended, so she had to go cover a convention or something in town. 
so the program continued. We ended. This woman came up to me and she said, when I heard you had Deborah Saunders on this program, I was so mad because I hate her column. And you know what? She was great. <laughs> and I was like, exactly. Yes, exactly. It's funny that you say that. I also work with an organization called Civity and then All Sides. And that's their goal is to engage across differences, sometimes difference of power, differential. But the idea that we can we should actually be able to talk with each other and the way that news is presented contextually, it, it, it's in a context that makes us diverge into our little areas or filter bubbles or echo chambers, whatever it is, instead of just sitting down and being like, oh, actually, you and I agree on a lot. We just, oh my God. That's a great moment. What are some other moments or, or things about this program where you feel, gosh, I'm so thankful we're doing this or I feel like I'm contributing this? I really like it when, and this has happened a lot, where someone afterward either will send me an email or they'll come up and talk to me or talk to one of my panelists and just say, really enjoyed that program. You really made me understand why XYZ works. You know, I never understood why conservatives want to do this on immigration or something. I may not agree with it, but I understand it now. That's the best. That's the, that's the goal. A lot of what I've seen is that people do want to engage and they do want to figure it out. Why do you think people come and why do you think they're they're willing to take the time? For one thing, we kind of alluded earlier to kind of bubbles that people get into. This is the Bay Area. It's like bubble central, right? When, when I have gone for a period of time where I've maybe had some trouble finding, for example, a conservative panelist. And I always want at least one on a panel. Um, but through... For example, Deborah Saunders is now in Washington, D.C., covering the White House. Um, others have moved to Southern California or, you know, they're changed jobs or something. So just this past year, I was happy. I got two new conservatives and they were both great. But when I've had a program where I just wasn't able to get a conservative on the panel, it's been liberals in the audience who have come up to me afterward and said, can you get Carson back? What happened? Where's Bill Whalen? I, you know, because they want to hear someone who will give them information they don't have, give them insight into something they're not getting from whatever their, their general news sources are. So frankly, I fail with this program if I do go for a while without getting other viewpoints into it. And one of my biggest failings was finding, for example, Trump supporters. Um, I had one, and, and uh, to be honest, we had a couple audience members who were kind of ginned up by the election and shouted at him. He never came back. You know, and, and it's like, I don't need someone who is going to come and try to convert people to Trumpism, but to be able to explain why he's doing something rather than everyone just relying on what Rachel Maddow says. And I'm not criticizing Rachel Maddow. I'm just saying someone to get on the other side and you can, you can again, hear it in their frame, framework of ideas and, and either reject it or not, but still you, okay, that's why they're doing that. Yes. What about on the flip side? Clearly, the Bay Area is known to be more of a progressive place, but certainly conservatives live here. Do you have conservatives who are attending and engaging as well? Yes. So uh, at the Commonwealth Club, we always try to get input from audience members, whether it's you know live questions in, into a microphone or written questions that then are brought forward and the moderator kind of works them into the conversation. So I always get those questions as well. And they, they come up, you know, well, why do Democrats keep doing X, Y, Z? And I will try to get our people to answer that and address that. So I, I don't see this as a mission to the liberals of the Bay Area. I see it as really something that, hey, look, we're all in this together. Let's try to understand it. 
let's try not to demonize anyone, but let's actually really try to at least say, look, this was this is the issue we're talking about. And when you have that information and when you see someone who is making this case or giving the information, and it's not just something, you know, in a remote TV or reading it in a, in a paper or something, I think there is a possibility that you're at least going to be a little bit more empathetic to them. Okay, they're a human being. Even if I think that's an idiotic idea, this is a human being saying it. And you know what? I kind of liked what this person said the other 45% of this program. So, you know, maybe they're not a complete idiot. Exactly. I, you just touched on so many things. They're a human being. Empathy. Contextualizing the person not as the enemy, but as an actual human who's just like me. And, oh, you have the same concern about this issue. You just have a different way of getting to the solution. When we get into the issue of, like, political discussions, we also have to understand that most people aren't wired to understand politics. They're wired more to think of, why isn't the situation being taken care of? Why are all those people in Washington arguing? Why, a perfect example really, or a great example and a silly example, was the President of the United States criticizing Nancy Pelosi because of problems in San Francisco's streets and saying, well, why doesn't she solve this? And of course the answer is, that's not what the U.S. representative for any area does. You can go after the mayor, and probably should. You can go after the supervisors and the commissioners and you know the people who are working. But that was someone who maybe could have used a bit more context. Sure. Great example. When I say put news in context, contextualize news and information, what, what does that mean to you? What, what does it mean to you to, to put news in context? It means to not just report, if, assuming it's like radio, TV, news, whatever type of report, it's not just XYZ happened, so-and-so said such-and-such such about it, someone else said something else about it. And there, now you have the story. And I think that's not necessarily always done out of uh, lack of uh, perception on the, the news organization side, because they're also often thinking, we've covered this story every week for the past three years or whatever, so another story on uh, the abuse of opioids or whatever, we're assuming our audience has taken in some of the rest of that, but they may not have. Well, I, I think that's important. As someone who used to work in a newsroom, I can personally attest to that. You think, my God, oh, we covered this story all the time. I know so much about it. I just need to give you the piece that's new. Okay, you, you teach. I would be a terrible teacher because I tend to think anything I know, I can't believe someone else doesn't know. And I don't mean, oh, I think they're an idiot. I just mean, I don't know how they could not know this. You know, if we're talking about, I've done a lot of real estate finance journalism, done a lot of high tech technology journalism. I mean, I know I'm not the super expert in those. So therefore, if I understand what auction rate bonds are and secondary market mortgage securitization. Huh? No, just kidding. <laughs> right. Well, I kind of figure, okay, well, anyone who's entering into a conversation with me about that has got to at least know the basics. In those situations, I'm horrible at contextualizing because I don't know what the other person's understanding is, what their world is. I, you know, both in high tech and in, in commercial real estate, um, I was writing for audiences that were already expert in this stuff. So um, I am somewhat in awe of people who are very good at understanding something very intricately, but then being able to say, okay, this is what it means. Um, I, I would love to see if someone's done any research on whether someone who's a really good teacher is a better journalist because of that. 
Ooh, that's interesting. And it's funny, just in the teaching context, it's true. I had to, not deliberately, I mean, I love to teach. I've always loved to coach. I mean, I've always loved breaking things down. So it's not that it was hard for me, but to be more deliberate about thinking about that. Like, it's true. You do walk in a room and think, well, you're here in college. You should at least know these basic things. And sometimes their high school may have focused elsewhere, right? And and so I always, I, I always deliberately remind myself, they walk into the room having disparate experiences that that are all valuable yeah that i i love the the point you're making about actually understanding that your your disparate audience has disparate backgrounds which makes it even a bigger challenge than to come up with a a through line on a story that they'll all get when you talk about contextualizing it's helping it's it's hopefully helping people understand the full picture and when you're sitting in a newsroom thinking oh, the audience must know this. There's, there are ways that we have to think about how do we present this information at various levels? Like here's the basic level, but oh, if you know a little bit but need to know more, here are some links to stories that we've done in the past. Or if you don't have any context, here's the foundational information linked elsewhere that we've already done or, or whatever it is. Like somehow thinking about context and, and 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 meeting your audience who might be coming from different places at various levels. I think one of the areas of journalism where context is least provided and it's most important is in medical and healthcare reporting. Where yeah, I mean just think back of you're getting too much salt. Okay, years later. Oh, you're not getting enough salt. You know, this is bad, that is bad. Well, the effect of it is anyone who's reading this stuff is A, they're going to think these journalists don't know what they're talking about. And they're going to think the doctors don't know what they're talking about because they don't understand anything. No one has put into context, in this case, what a study is, how studies are done, whether the study was a double-blind study. Was it, is this a peer-reviewed thing? What does it mean to have it be peer-reviewed? Or was, oh, wait a minute, this study telling you that uh, you're eating too much salt was, or you're not eating enough salt, was, you know, funded by the American Sodium Institute or what? I mean, all of that stuff is really important to understanding this. And it kind of builds into this whole phenomenon of Americans just being kind of manic about diet fads and new eating fads. And I'm just going to eat licorice for a week and this kind of stuff because they don't have that kind of built in sense of, okay, first, here's our baseline of a basic general dietary culture in this country. Second, they're getting terrible, terrible, terrible news, even from reporters and publicists who try to talk about these things, who do understand it and should know better. Absolutely. And it's funny, in, in my teaching context, when I teach headlines, I actually break it down. I'm like, here's the headline. Chocolate is terrible for you. And here is a piece of the study. And I take out, um, you know, mice were given this much chocolate over a period of this much time and this happened to them, right? Like they did mice. And then there was, there's one I have where it said, you know, Facebook makes you study less. And then in the study itself, it says, we're not sure whether this is a cause and effect relationship. You can't just take the news release. You got to contextualize it. You got to know really what's going on behind the scenes. All the things you mentioned, the peer review, the, the funding, everything, what type of study. Journalists, I think, can do a better job. And what I mean is daily journalists can do a better job at contextualizing. Then we get to the issue of why journalists are in this position to potentially be unable to contextualize information. There are some structural and systemic issues in journalism that lead to journalists not having the time or the resources to contextualize information, um, such as being asked to 
produce three stories in a day, which is a thing. Being owned by uh, entities that are not there to support the journalism, but to siphon off the assets. You, of course, have a broadcast news background. I've got a lot of digital journalism background as well as print. My parents were newspaper editors and, and political cartoonists back on a daily in, in Wisconsin. Back when you used to have kind of that, that stereotypical gruff editor, people of a certain age will remember Lou Grant, you know, and someone writes a story, they hand it into the editor, and the editor is like, well, what about this? You're missing this. You didn't do this. Who is this person? Why are you? And it's not just writing tips. It's how is the reader going to read this? The editor is to be there to know how the viewer or the reader or the listener is interpreting and, and receiving everything you're presenting, whether it's an image or text or a description of someone, why you're describing this person at this point and not way up here. We have writers who are, like you said, writing three stories a day, and they may not be writing three stories in the same field. They might be a court reporter, they might be doing a real estate article, and then going off to cover the mayor's speech at, you know, commemorating a new park or something like that. Good luck doing anything other than basically regurgitating what you see in what a press release is. And then the organizations that are above them, the top editors are probably spending more time out there trying to bring in advertising. And they no longer have a lot of their sub-editors. And they no longer have, what, 40, 50, 60% of their newsroom around them. So I'm curious what you think about who gets the blame in that because the, the, the interpretation is kind of like, well, is this what the readers want or is this what the corporations are presenting? What do you think? I think a lot of things. With regard to the audience, I think, yeah, sure. I mean, more people are reading digital. They're not buying newspapers, advertising revenues. That's all true. But it's not the largest piece. You know, I mean, that is a problem and we need to address it or figure that out as an industry. And also there are audiences who, oh, our local paper isn't covering news the way we want them to cover it. There are audience members demanding that they see their perspective in the news rather than the news. That's a problem and we need to address that. We need to figure that out as a society. But one of the most major problems that I see or that, that I think is, is going on here is the idea that newspapers, uh, which used to be family owned, we, we decided early on, we're not going to have a government-run paper. We're going to do private news. And generally, that was seen as a public service, though money was to be made. And we've seen, you know, yellow journalism. We've seen, you know, hints of this along the way. But now we've got a situation where large corporations, hedge funds, are buying news outlets, not because they've turned into, like, people who care about good journalism, but because they see that these legacy news outlets have real estate. Oh, you own your own building. Oh, that's a large building. Wow, it's in the middle of downtown. We can make some money off that, right? So what it, I think is a larger issue is the idea of newspapers' resources being gutted. And then, of course, oh, we have too many people on staff. Why do you need an editor? Why do you need a copy editor? Uh, you know what? We can save money there. Let's cut that. And all of a sudden, the resources that went into that quality journalism are gone, and then you have frustrated audiences. I don't like the way you cover stuff anymore. Uh, what is this? Why is the paper only four pages when it used to be this? I will not deny, obviously, that there are issues with people moving online and with people getting frustrated with news, and even with, uh, with journalists trying to figure out the balance between promotion and journalism in this context. But I do think one of the major issues is this, this corporate ownership. I, I agree. And I, I really like your tying it into kind of the history of papers. I mean, a lot of papers were started at, by zillionaires, 
you know, back when millionaires were considered to be rich. Um, and they, a lot of them were very politically, you know, you would have the Richmond Democrat and the Houston Republican papers. Over time, of course, they did find that these could make a lot of money. The good thing was a lot of them pumped that money back into the paper. Right. So you got big newsrooms and you developed this culture that was not there back in the 1800s of, you know, the idea of, we can call it objective journalism, but even with the caveat, there's no such thing as truly objective, but people who were trying that. And and really what they were trying to do was, again, take into account their biases and at least present it in a way that people could understand it and make up their own mind. So these papers get big. And, in, and even in small towns, a lot of papers did very, very well, especially because of classified advertising, right? They made a ton of money off that. But in big cities, of course, some of them became quite powerful, bought radio stations, bought or started radio stations, television stations. Like you said, they have their their Tribune Tower, which is, by the way, now uh, high-end uh, luxury condominiums. And so then when they get to the point where, okay, the newspapers have contracted, hit largely by the loss of, of classified advertising, and so you have the hedge funds buy it, the hedge funds are just about their returns. That's why they exist. They're not there to invest in, in quality journalism. And it's exactly what you said. They're, they're looking at this and saying, oh, and, and we've seen this, obviously I just alluded to Chicago, we've seen it here in the Bay Area where journalists would be talking about, oh, they've been moved into another building because the building that they owned that was built by this successful newspaper or even chain of newspapers over decades was sold for X millions of dollars, none of which, none of the proceeds of which are going into the newspaper, they're going into the hedge fund. And you kind of get this rump entity of the newspaper, print newspaper still existing, being told it basically has to sink or swim on its own while the real estate goes off, while the radio and TV are maybe bundled up into a separate company and, and done as in fact happened with the Tribune company in Chicago. And that compounds a problem that was already there. So rather than a larger corporation that can then pool resources from all of these different aspects, you just have a kind of a death spiral. And, and unfortunately, that that plays into everything we've been talking about of, of not enough resources to both explore and report on and investigate and have a research department and all that, but also no corporate patience for a report being held because we're continuing to run it through and 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 we're trying to fight with the mayor's office because they're trying to influence us you just get get the damn paper out <laughs> right right exactly exactly we don't even realize we need the context like i just just give me give me the headline let me move on let me move through my feed well okay yeah we're here in the bay area big high-tech uh, mecca and again that's another one of my past uh careers if you will in journalism and it's a terrible area for contextualization because a you have a lot of journalists who are more cheerleaders than journalists they'll be the ones they'll go to and I, I remember being at an apple conference and i don't know it was a steve jobs presentation or something else dozens and dozens of journalists and like whoever this apple star was who came out to give some product announcement and the journalists were standing up and cheering and i'm like okay in a real journalism world you'd be fired or at least called on the carpet and Lou Grant would chew you a new one. So you have that problem. But then you also have the industry itself, which is built on kind of equal parts, technical genius and marketing hype. And they're not going to give you any context of, we used to have uh, people come into us when I was with a magazine called Internet World in New York. We had the companies would all the time come in, they'd want to talk to our editors about something, talk about their products, talk about some trends, which was great. 
And for the most part, you could stay awake during the presentations. We'd keep them to 30 minutes. But we also had some kind of fairly standard questions. And it wasn't just because we were bored and couldn't think of any other question. It was kind of to see, well, how realistic are they being with us? One of them was, oh, so who are your competitors? Where, what, what part of the market do you see yourself changing or going after? And the most common answer was, oh, we don't have any competitors. We're in a whole something. It's like, you just have a new server that's either faster, slower, stupider, bigger, greener, whatever. And who buys that when you say, oh, I don't have any competitors? You just haven't done your research. Right. So in that case, obviously, the technology journalist's job is to say, okay, this company is coming out with a new server. It is going to differentiate itself by doing blah, 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 or... There's no differentiation with this new product. We're not sure why the heck they're coming out with it. But, you know, they haven't released a product in three years, so maybe they just needed to get something, whatever it is. But technology is an area where the audience is really susceptible as well because, A, they don't understand it any more than, you know, they might understand high finance. And, B, there's an allure there of, ooh, this is magical. I've got a little machine. I can now do video conferencing like on Star Trek. You know, all that kind of stuff. And not enough questioning then being asked about, okay, well, is it good? Is it too much? How much? Yeah, you love that company. You know, they've got how many hundreds of billions of dollars that they keep offshore? Why don't they, they bring that over here? You know, I mean, zillions of different questions you can get into. But again, the journalists, the companies themselves, and the audience, the public, are all kind of in cahoots in not contextualizing and not having a desire to contextualize. What do you see as the dangers of failing to add context to the news and information that's disseminated? Um, let me be totally contrarian here. I'm sure. not sure I totally believe this, but it's a factor. And that is, so back in the good old days when, say, every big city had two or three newspapers and everyone subscribed to at least one newspaper, right? Most people were probably picking up that newspaper, reading the comics, maybe going to the sports section, maybe reading Ann Landers, there's always been that slice of society that does, you know? You subscribe to the New York Review of Books, you maybe read the New Yorker, or you, you listen to a bunch of podcasts from different voices that you know delve into things, have intelligent conversations about ideas, whatever. I, I, I'm not trying to say they're all sitting around sipping Chardonnay and, and, and extolling, you know, French philosophy, because I couldn't do that. I hate Chardonnay. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but... There's that portion of the society that I suspect still does buy books, still reads print and digital and, and all that kind of stuff. What's the danger of the rest of society not having contextualization and that, that deeper understanding? I think it's because back when people were maybe just going for the sports mostly and the comics and the crossword puzzle or whatever, they still had a paper, even if it was, say, the, I don't know, the Portland Democrat where they would still have some conservative columnists in there, where they would still be exposed to that. And this is a paper coming to the house every day. And sometimes they're bored and their ride hasn't arrived and so they're gonna read it more, which is very different from, I'm bored so I'm just going to keep digging into Infowars because I know they're gonna really go and make those libs cry in another video. Right. All right, well, is there anything else you want to add that I that we didn't talk about? I don't know where all this is going. I don't know any solution to this. You know, I think we've identified both somewhat trends as well as what are some of the dangers of this. But Jeff Bezos can't buy every place and actually hire reporters and such. And I wouldn't even hold him out as, you know, the ideal owner. 
but all of the economic pressures on the news are still there and that you know that we've been seeing that have been crushing a lot of news organizations are still there and i do not know where it's going and i don't want to end on a pessimistic note i'm just saying i don't know what's going to happen i certainly hope that you know some of these little things we see popping up here or there will grow or they'll merge and they'll become bigger or whatever but i'm not sure if i know what's going to happen or if we're in the wilderness for a long time how about you i'm in the same boat i'm not necessarily optimistic or pessimistic i think it's it's just a realistic place to be it's i think we're still figuring it out i think the pressures are still very much there and pulling the levers at this point it can be an exciting time it could be a tragic time i'm just not quite sure which it will be but yeah i mean i i think talking about it the way we're talking about it and making sure we keep it in the in the conversation is what I think you and I can both do to try to get to a better solution. Yay us. Yay us. Thank you so much. Glad to do it. A deep and grateful thank you to John Zipperer, the creator of the Week to Week News Quiz, host of the Week to Week Political Roundtable, and vice president of editorial at the Commonwealth Club of California. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about putting news in context. You can check out the Commonwealth Club's week-to-week political roundtable by going to commonwealthclub.org slash W2W. And of course, try your hand at the week-to-week news quiz, commonwealthclub.org slash W2W quiz. Music used in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. To hear my full conversation with John, go to newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening to News in Context. Talk with you again soon.